beautiful singing this morning. Thank you for worshiping Christ together as a church body. We'll continue that worship now as we look at the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. very familiar text. I encourage you to try to read it with new eyes as much as possible this morning. The Apostle Paul testifies, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Now when I hear this text, several words uh, come to mind. I mean, here we are contemplating the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's testimony, and, and this is what I hear. Intensity, focus, discipline, exertion, intentionality, effort. Do you hear that as well? A modern-day parallel to someone so disciplined and driven would be the inimitable Jocko Wilkin. Now, you may not know him, uh, but if I could describe him to you, he may be one of the scariest human beings imaginable. Now, that being said, he, he is a 230-pound um, American, all-American, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, who used to tap out 20 Navy SEALs at a time for his workout. This was his daily workout. <laughs> He's a legend in the special operations world insofar as he spent 20 years in the Navy and commanded the SEAL teams, SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser, which was one of the most decorated units in the Iraq War. Upon returning to the United States, Jocko served as the officer in charge for all the West Coast training uh, SEAL teams, and he designed and implemented some of the most challenging training scenarios in the world. After he retired from the Navy, he then became a consultant. His company is called the Echelon Front, and so he now applies his military prowess to particular companies. He even wrote a number one New York Times best-selling book called Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win. And I warn you, you do not want to read that book unless you want to feel horrible about yourself. <laughs> when asked about his life motto, Jocko responds, my mantra is a very simple one, and that's this. Discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom. He explains. He says, I'm up and getting after it by 4.45 a.m. 
I like to have that psychological win over the enemy. For me, when I wake up in the morning and I don't know why, I'm thinking about the enemy and what they're doing. I know I'm not on active duty anymore, but it's still in my head that there's a guy in a cave somewhere and he's rocking back and forth and he's got a machine gun in one hand and a grenade in the other and he's waiting for me and, and we're going to meet. And so when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking to myself, what can I do to be ready for that moment which is coming? And this propels me out of bed. <laughs> you see it now? I mean, you hear of Jocko, what comes to mind? Intensity, focus, discipline, exertion, intentionality, effort. And as you listen to Paul here, what comes to mind? Intentionality, focus, discipline, exertion, effort. Now, with that in mind, it would be easy to approach this text with a little bit of dread. (laughs) I mean, as you pick up on the general vibe that's here, it would be easy for you to think that this is going to be as about as enjoyable as having a 230-pound ex-Navy SEAL telling you how squishy your Christian life is and how you really need to ratchet up the intensity and you need to try harder and you need to do more. I mean, it would be easy for you to think that the next uh, 40 to 50 minutes are going to be like me actually telling you and warning you about how cushy and lazy your life has been in Jesus and how you need to turn up the intensity level. But I want you to know that even though this general intensity regarding spiritual things is indeed prevalent in this text, and it can intimidate the best of us, but the person who hears this text and only hears the grittiness is missing the point. This isn't just about intensity. It's about enjoyment. See, I think what what Paul is is, is trying to do here is not turn the Christian walk into some kind of Christian Spartan race, which wouldn't be fun for anyone. But he's actually trying to say that when you view Christ as valuable as he really is, your life may look like it's some kind of a Spartan race. He's not talking about how, how painful the Christian walk is. He's talking about how pleasurable Christ is. And from that, we would exert ourselves to any degree or to any amount of pain. I kind of wonder if there's a feeling in this room, maybe it's a sentiment that kind of gets out there. I don't know, maybe preachers put it off or whoever you think is spiritually mature may put off this vibe. That to, to really be in a close and intimate relationship with Jesus is is quite actually an unenjoyable thing. (laughs) Almost like taking some kind of monastic vow. You know, like if if that's, you know, the hard walk, the hard Christian walk, the difficulty, that's for the the committed. But I, I prefer the walk, not the run. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed my, uh, physique, I'm pretty tall. Tall people don't move fast anywhere. And that means I don't run without it looking ridiculous. (laughs) But guess what? Sometimes I make myself run, but it must be something pretty compelling for me to actually run. You know what Paul is saying here? He says, look, I understand that this is going to sound painful, but there's something compelling on the other end. There's something amazing. There's something fascinating that's here. And so he is actually incentivizing us to some level of spiritual intensity. What I would call it is that this text actually provides for us some incentives for passionately pursuing Christ. 
That may be the best way that I could put it. Passionately pursuing Christ, and there's three incentives here. I'll just give these to you very simply. They are opportunity, affinity, and maturity. I'll explain them each. But the incentives for passionately pursuing Christ here are opportunity, affinity, and maturity. Keep in mind, what Paul is doing here is he is fighting for the joy of the Philippians. How did he start off the chapter? Rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to maintain exclusive joy in Jesus. And what has he been doing the entire chapter thus far? He has been trying to actually protect their exclusive joy in Jesus. He's saying, hey, you know what would be dangerous for you is if you actually start focusing on anything or anyone else other than Jesus. That would rob you of joy. That will compromise your spiritual walk. He says, I find my highest enjoyment in Christ and nothing else that I've done. And when that's the case, I am driven all the more to continue to pursue him. And so, as he closes out his testimony here, we're going to see three incentives for continuing to passionately pursue Christ. And so let's look at these together. Incentive number one, for passionately pursuing Christ, that is opportunity. There is still more of him to enjoy. There is still more of him to enjoy. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you notice what he's saying? <laughs> he's saying, like, even though I, as the Apostle Paul, and I, even though I, as someone who has so much to tout in my past in some ways, there is still so much more of Jesus to own. He says, not that I have already obtained. Notice that. It, basically, the word obtain means to grasp. He's saying, I haven't fully grasped it. Uh, to use an American metaphor, I haven't fully wrapped my arms around this thing yet. What's he talking about? His relationship with Jesus. He enjoys a relationship with Jesus, but he hasn't mastered it in the same way that I've mastered this timer. It's in my grasp. It's, it's under my control. He's not there yet. And he also says that he is not yet perfect. Now, that's a little misleading, friends. Paul here is not in some way striving for moral perfection per se, like Benjamin Franklin did. Paul is striving for a relationship with Jesus. The word perfected here just literally means to not yet have arrived at a destination, to not reach the end. So Paul is not saying that he's actually trying to be morally perfect, although he may try, but he's talking about the goal. He's got a goal in mind. He's got an end destination, and that end destination isn't a list of rules, but it is a relationship, a fully consummated relationship with Christ. And he's saying, I'm not there yet. There's so much more to this, and so I continue to pursue passionately. This is why he adds, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice that, that word press on that's there in your text. It is the key word of the passage. He's going to repeat it again in verse 14, and the concept is, this is the concept that we need to highlight, excuse me. That, so what does it mean to press on? It means to move decisively or rapidly toward a goal or an object. To move decisively or rapidly to a goal or an object. It, it's not a walk or a saunter or a jog. 
It is an all-out sprint to a particular destination or goal or object. The word is used negatively in the New Testament to refer to persecution. This is the same word that's translated persecute. So when Paul was like on a manhunt for the church, like this is the same word. In fact, it was used in uh, the Greek literature of the day uh, with uh, Herodotus, excuse me. Yeah, the historian Herodotus used the same words of Paul to describe an army's pursuit and seizure of retreating columns of the enemy. So it, it means to, to, to go after something with vigor. Uh, positively, it just means to chase after someone or something that is positive or good. So if you take Paul's athletic context here, what would it be? It would be aggressive exertion toward the goal. Now, I've never been in a formal race before. I've already told you that's not my thing. But I think I've seen enough of them to know. There is a finish line. There is a tape. There is a mark to which someone pursues. What then is this mark, practically speaking, for Paul? What is it that he's continuing to pursue? This is where we're going to, to wade into the waters of uncertainty, that, that fine line between the intensity of the Christian walk and the enjoyment of the Christian walk. Well, what has Paul been talking about? What has he been talking about in the previous verses? What did, he, what would he, what did we see last week? He says, my aim, my goal, my focus, my target is what? To enjoy Christ. To enjoy him in the present, right? Through the, the pain that would come from suffering. But he also said to enjoy him in the future. There's going to be a, a consummate enjoyment of our relationship with Christ when we are resurrected from the dead and we fully and finally enjoy him. And so I want to introduce some special adverbs to you to help you walk this theological nuance. Paul already enjoys Christ truly, but he does not yet enjoy Christ fully. Paul already enjoys Christ truly, but he does not enjoy him fully. There is a sense in which an even better expression or enjoyment of Christ is still to come. And he's saying, that is what I'm continuing to pursue after. That moment where he finally sees Christ face to face. He knows that there, more, there is more opportunity left on the table. And this keeps the relationship from being so passive as if like he's already attained. There's just so much more of Jesus to enjoy. And he's saying, I'm pursuing that. Friends, if you apply this athletic imagery to the relational sphere, you'll start to get the picture. I know that the athletic metaphor is clear, but it doesn't make sense when you're talking about relationships. So I want to talk about something that does make sense when we're talking about relationship. And that is a young man pursuing a young woman's hand in marriage. That is an exerted, all-out effort on his part. Because at the beginning, the relationship is, is merely this. It's a guy, and it's a girl, and she doesn't even know that he exists. <laughs> he has to make his presence known, and not only does he have to make his presence known, but he then has to persuade her that his presence is worth being around. And not only that his presence is worth being around, but it's worth being around a lot. And not only that it's worth being around a lot, but it's that, worth this, that it's worth being around for the rest of her life. 
And you know the intentionality, the focus, the effort, the passion that goes into that? I mean, I mean, trying to forecast like her every thought, like trying to meet her every need. I mean, the tireless expenditure of effort to win someone's hand in a relationship. <laughs> in some ways, that's what Paul is referring to. He, he is talking about like an all-out enjoyment of this relationship with Christ. He is pursuing it with everything that he has. Don't worry, I know the objection. Justin, this analogy doesn't work because we who believe are already married to Jesus. We weren't trying to woo him. We weren't trying to convince him to like us. We weren't asking for him to marry us. He proposed to us. That's true. Salvation is indeed a binary proposition. It is not a sliding scale as if if we continue to turn up the intensity of the relationship with Jesus, we may one day have one. Remember, I've already said that we enjoy a relationship with Christ truly, but what Paul here is talking about is enjoying a relationship with Christ fully. Salvation is indeed by grace. It is not by works. So I am so glad you've been listening. Congratulations. <laughs> but what I want you to note is that Paul commends the same kind of intensity and passion even though he is already in a relationship with Christ. Notice the text. He says specifically, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, the whole reason why I'm exerting myself is not to get Christ, but because Christ, pardon the grammar here, got me. He says, this relationship is so amazing that I want to continue to go deeper into it. It isn't just like, okay, now that we're in the relationship, we're done. I know all of Jesus that I need to know. He finds the same intensity in pushing forward toward that next expression of his enjoyment of relationship with Christ at the resurrection as he does right now in the present. He says, I will keep pressing forward. There is so much more of Christ to enjoy. Friends, this flies in the face of the sinful, I'll call it that, sinful tendency in some marriage relationships to fall flat. Right? Uh, The guy, having secured said woman's hand in marriage, enjoys some kind of a honeymoon phase, and then six to eight months in, his natural male psyche takes over and says, done. Mission accomplished relationship had and I'm sure there could be plenty of lamenting wives in the room my own at times being able to confess that that is a horrible feeling and you know what Paul is saying here may it never be it isn't that you get in with Jesus and you've somehow arrived and you just sit back and you take it easy and you watch sports on Saturdays and you don't take your, your Lord out anymore and enjoy Him. It is actually, aggressively pursuing even greater degrees of intimacy with your Lord. There is so much more to enjoy. By the way, that's true of your marriage. That is why it says, men, I'm sorry, it's not a marriage message, but I'll say it since I'm on it. 1 Peter 3, 7, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. There is so much more to that woman to know, to learn. 
there's so many more opportunities to display the love of Christ. And Paul says, look, here in my relationship with Christ, I haven't arrived. It's not that we're at a good point. We are at a good point. I do enjoy my relationship with him, but there is so much more to enjoy. I want to make this clear for anybody who may be visiting today, anyone who doesn't yet understand the good news of Christ. Look, you are not the suitor. You are not the one that is trying to impress Christ and trying to get him to like you. If you have any interest in Christ, it's because he's already shown interest in you. He pursued you. He fulfilled the law for you. He satisfied God's wrath for you. He rose again for all who would believe in him. He did all the saving. But you get to enter into this relationship through faith. He did the work and you get the benefit. This is what it means to be saved. But for those of us who are already in that relationship, there is so much more of this relationship to enjoy. The, the more we come to know Christ, the more we sense our need of Him. I mean, it's this amazing cycle in which we sense more of our need, and then we get more of Christ. And then the more we know Christ, we know we need Him more. And then we seek Him even more. I mean, it is, it is a rabbit hole of delight as you continue to pursue Christ and be pursued by Him. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, look, I am down the rabbit hole. I am totally understanding that there is just so much more of this relationship to enjoy. And that is why I am willing to totally lay it all out there and passionately pursue him. This is why, friends, if there is any dissatisfaction in your own heart this morning in your relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Matthew 5, 6 says, uh, blessed are they who, what, hunger and thirst after righteousness. There should be a sense of holy longing, a, a desire to know him even more. And so Paul is saying, look, I passionately pursue Christ on account of the opportunity that's there. But there's another incentive for him to pursue Christ passionately, and that is what I would call affinity. Affinity, not just opportunity, but affinity. The win for Paul is a tangible relationship with God. The win for Paul is a tangible relationship with God. Look at verses 13 and 14. Notice the focus of all his striving. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, something interesting is happening here. I don't know if you've noticed it, but Paul will essentially repeat himself. If that verse, or those verses, sound familiar to verse 12, well, they are. <laughs> but we know that this is an effective learning tool. It has been said that repetition is the mother of all learning. What do we mean by that? Well, we learn things by having them repeated to us on a regular basis. And so what did we just learn in the last 10 seconds? That repetition helps us learn things. <laughs> this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's going to repeat himself in ways that are familiar, but notice he's going to add an additional motive or incentive for his enjoyment of his relationship with Christ. He's been talking about passionately pursuing Christ. That's the it, the thing that he is referring to. 
And now notice his extreme focus on this one particular thing. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Well, what's that? It's what he was just saying. There's so much more opportunity to be had. But notice this, but one thing I do. Now, Paul is going to exert himself in one direction. In the truest sense of the word, Paul is going to disclose for us his priority. I've discussed this with you before, but technically the word priority is singular. It's not plural. You can't have priorities. Priority means first thing. There's only one first thing. And Paul is telling us what his, his first thing is. I mean, like a heat-seeking missile, Paul is, is locked on to what? His goal of pursuing Christ. And he's going to describe it in a way that makes it sound like it's more than one thing, though. Because he's using, uh, grammar alert here, some participles. He's going to use a couple of participles, but there's one main verb. And I want to get to that. But let me just address the participles. What are participles? Well, they're just ways of actually, in some cases, showing the means by which something is done. So Paul does one thing, and he gets to that one thing via two ways. Notice what he says here. Here's my one thing, and here's the ways that I do it. We'll hit the one thing in a minute. But the first way is forgetting what lies behind, verse 13. The past. He has a, there's a past orientation. The, the first means is that in this one thing that I go about doing, in light of my experiential enjoyment of Christ, it's fir- the first thing that I'm doing is to forget what lies behind. To follow the spirit of the metaphor, what Paul is saying is that when I'm in this race, when I'm in full stride, I don't look back. I don't know if you've ever had the temptation to do that in your racing career, <laughs> but I promise you it's not going to help you. It breaks the focus of the moment. This is something that's been known for racing for generations. You must stay focused on the goal. The old saying, keep your eyes on the prize. Paul says, look, I will not look back. Now, when he's talking about looking back, what is he referring to? Well, he's already told us. Paul says, I'm not looking back to all of those things, those those expressions of righteousness that I had done in the past, verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. He says, I'm not looking back to that. He says, I'm just looking ahead. I am focused on what needs to be done. I mean, in fact, we saw that Paul viewed those past things as liabilities. So Paul's not looking at his credits. He's not looking at his critics. I mean, like the things that he saw now as liabilities. Like, nope, I'm not going to look at that. I am pressing forward. So there is a past aspect, there's a future aspect. Notice what he says, and straining forward to what lies ahead. Again, we've got more intense language here. We've got this, again, participle talking about the means by which you'll press on. And what is it? Straining forward. It means to exert oneself to the uttermost. If I were to make this a car analogy, it is the red line on the tachometer. It it is giving it everything that you have. I mean, think about it. When you strain, when you physically exert yourself. Have you ever tried to help a friend? And this is a true test of friendship. Have you ever tried to help a friend move a piano? I'm telling you, that's how you know who your friends are. Anybody can help somebody else move. Only real friends help somebody move a piano. It's a painful experience. If you want to see exertion, if you want to see strain, 
just note what happens in that moment. I mean, like, you can feel the throbbing in your head as you're holding this thing, trying not to break your own back. Paul is saying that, look, it is that type of focus. It is that type of intentionality. I am straining for what is ahead. And so here's the question for us. He forgets what's behind. He's straining forward to what ahead is to what is ahead. So then what is he doing? What is this thing? Next verse clarifies it all. He says, I press on toward the goal. Toward the goal, verse 14. He has something in mind that would drive him to actually expend himself in these ways. And here's a a very important question for us. What is this goal? What is so compelling for the Apostle Paul that he would literally be willing to expend himself to the point of exhaustion, like to the veins throbbing on his face? (laughs) Popular interpretations of this goal include merely that of heaven itself. That's what most people think that the goal is, or the prize. The goal is just to make it through this life, and the prize is to be able to walk on golden streets and push through pearly gates and sit in mansions and strum harps or whatever it is that people say happens in heaven. But friends, I actually don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. Paul isn't driven by a place. He's driven by a person. He says that I am pressing toward the goal for the prize of what? The upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? It is God's divine invitation into his presence, hence the word upward. It could also be translated heavenward. It's not a a spatial locator as much as it is an indicator that God is not just drawing us into like experiential fellowship with him and in this this life, some kind of spiritual thing, but it, it is a sense in which we move into a new plane in which we finally get to enjoy the invitation that he sent out from the very beginning to enjoy actual tactile presence and relationship with him. We said this last week, but it bears saying again, uh, the way that God designed for us to enjoy him was actually something physical. You look at what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. It isn't just some ethereal spiritual existence. There was a real place and a real garden that God himself actually walked in, and they were supposed to protect that garden so that they could continue to enjoy his presence. And what does he save us to? If rebellion kicked us out of that state, what what are we reconciled to? What are we called back into? The enjoyment of the same state. Paul is saying that, look, the upward call, the prize is this, to enjoy the actual presence of God in Christ, which is the only way that humans, mortals like us, can enjoy the presence of God in Christ. And this is way different. This is complete ultimate end-time enjoyment of Christ. Author Sam Gordon puts it this way. He says, the prize is, in Paul's mind, it's bigger than some kind of a place. It's, it's better than never going hungry again. It's, it's better than being born free from pain and sickness or reuniting with redeemed loved ones. He says, the best thing about the prize that awaits us at the finish line is not the taste of the food at the Lamb's wedding supper. 
It isn't having tears of sorrow wiped from our eyes. It isn't streets of gold or mansions that never need repair or alarm systems. The most intense pleasure of heaven is found in the final vision where we shall worship him and see his face in glory. Did you hear all those wonderful things that he described? And he's saying, that's actually not the prize. Prize. enjoyment of our relationship with Jesus. When I was growing up, we used to sing this, this hymn, this chorus. I don't even know what it was, but I remember it fondly. It was the, this, this expression. I don't remember the verses. I only remember the chorus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One look at his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Paul is incited to a passionate pursuit It's the affinity. It's the relationship that he wants to enjoy. So there's opportunity to enjoy him more. There is affinity. That is the true prize that that he is pursuing. And and what does this actually mean for us, friends? How, How would this affect us? MacArthur says it this way, If you properly value the heavenly prize, it will compel you to give of yourselves and of your resources. Fervency springs from a vision of heaven's reward. When you see Jesus clearly and know that this is the focus, that this is the prize, it's not just stuff, because you can have stuff down here, but you can have a consummated relationship with him. How does it then affect us? Well, Paul is saying, hey, take a lesson from a runner. Here's how it's going to work. First of all, it should drive you to forget about your past. I'm revisiting something already written, but we need to actually embrace it for a moment. Knowing that Christ and that relationship is the ultimate treasure, how should it then practically affect us? Will we then forget what is behind us, Paul says. This should affect us in a couple ways. Uh, For those of us who have accolades to share, and we think that our life has been amazing up to this point, I know that's not everybody, but some people really do. They look back and they think of previous ministry endeavors or acts of devotion, and they were motivated by a desire to maybe impress God or others, but they did a lot of like good stuff for Jesus, and so they feel like they feel complete in that. They find some kind of rest in that. Paul says, look, that's already worthless trash anyway. Just forget it. Anything that's self-motivated, just go ahead and forget about that. Do yourself a favor. I think that especially this time of year, as we begin to reflect and look ahead to a new year, Paul, when he says, forgetting that which is behind, he isn't saying, totally wipe it from your memory. That would contradict what he's done. Did he not just tell you about his past? (laughs) What Paul is ultimately conveying here is he's saying, don't be influenced by that. Don't be motivated by that. He's not saying have some kind of amnesia. He's saying, actually, try to put that behind you so that you're not resting on your old laurels, on your old spiritual trophies, talking about how great things used to be. That's Paul's primary thing. Friends, it it is so easy to look back to times past. I, 
I was talking to my barber the other day about this very thing. He was struggling spiritually. And he told me that, you know, I, I look back to those days when I first came to Christ and I used to fast and I used to pray and I was at church all the time. And anyway, those were good days. And here he was. He, he's not making progress in the present because he's holding on to some type of good time that he enjoyed in the past. It's a dangerous thing. Paul says, look, when you realize that the future enjoyment of Christ is the prize, that just you forget about that in the past. You forget about those accolades, but there's something else to forget, friends. And that is, you need to forget about not only your accolades, but you need to forget about your atrocities. Your atrocities. Those horrible things that you have done. I feel warranted to say this because Paul actually included not only all the really cool stuff, like the ritual of circumcision and being trained as a Pharisee and being born into the tribe of Benjamin. What did he also include? fact that he was a persecutor of the church. Friends, we need to forget our accolades. We need to forget our atrocities. We need to forget those things, those horrible things that you have done in your past that you would hate for the other people in this church to know, those things that you have hidden so well. Let's let it go. It's been forgiven. You move on, and you enjoy Jesus. I think there's a there's a tendency within us all to think that there's something cathartic, that there's something good about dwelling on those things and thinking about how horrible we used to be. And Paul says, no. Forgetting what lies behind, that is how I press on toward the mark for the prize of the upward calling of God. He says, you've let those things go. Move on. So, when we recognize that Christ, that affinity with him is the true treasure, there should be a measure of forgetfulness. But then with that, in combination with that, there is some fervency. And, and this is the thing that, that I think kind of scares us because this is where you start to say, oh, no, now it's going to get, you know, kind of guilt-inducing. No, 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 no. There, there's just so much opportunity here to lean in totally on your relationship with Jesus. I, I don't know... Sometimes I feel bad, like, repeating the same stuff over and over again because I'm like, man, I, you know what? I think I've said this, like, seven times in the last three months. And yet, the text says it seven times in the last three months, so I don't know what else to do. But you know what Paul, again, is reminding us? Give everything you've got toward one goal, and that is the enjoyment of Jesus Christ both now and in the not yet. That is your focus. Look, I'll tell you, this is, this is a hard thing, but I just want you to know that this is indeed the best way to summarize the Christian life as ongoing enjoyment of Jesus. If you can focus on that, you can still do the work that God has called you to do and take care of your family and still hit the one thing. It's been said that in the analogy of the sporting world, no athlete is successful at every sport. We know that to be true. You're going to pick and choose. Paul here is saying, like, look, I, I can't be a specialist in everything, but I can specialize in this one thing, and that is enjoying Jesus. I put that at the top of the list. I, um, 
I've, I've told you guys in times past, I like to read a, a ton of different stuff. I'll give you an exercise. Uh, only the, um, the readers in the room can partake. <laughs> but if, if you really want to know what this would practically look like, can I encourage you to read a non-Christian book and then apply it to a Christian principle? Just humor me. There's a couple books that have come out in the last couple years that have been uh, kind of popular, Amazon things, New York Times things. I've read these, and then I start thinking about these through the lens of my relationship with Christ, and it is such a clarifying thing. Uh, the first one's called Essentialism by George McEwen. Uh, basically, it's a book about doing that which is essential. Well, th- the crazy thing about these books is they don't define what the essential thing is. You get to define what the essential thing is. So here's what I'd say you do. Plug in the essential thing as enjoyment of relationship with Jesus and then see how the book plays out. Or another one, I've read it twice in the past year. It's called The One Thing. Not kidding, that's the name of the book. The One Thing by Gary Keller. Well, Gary doesn't tell you what the one thing is. He lets you define that. But I'm telling you that Paul's already told us what the one thing is. (laughs) I mean, even non-Christians understand the value of focusing on something in particular. And Paul is saying, like, look, you take that, you take that discipline of focusing on the one thing, the essential things, and then let that filter into everything else. I promise you, friends, it doesn't mean that you're all going to, like, quit your jobs and join the ministry. (laughs) I think that's what people are afraid of. Again, the monastic vow thing. It means that you will be more Christian in your marriage and at your workplace and in your community. You just enjoy Jesus. And then you seek to evidence that in concrete and tangible ways. The 19th century international evangelist D.O. Moody said this way, It is better to say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble in. (laughs) Unfortunately, friends, and I'm not trying to be mean here, I just think it's a tendency that's out there we should be aware of. I think for many Uh, Christianity is one of the 40 things we dabble in. And Paul commends to us, no, this is the one thing that you do. Enjoy Jesus. And why would you passionately pursue him to that degree? Well, because of affinity, you want to enjoy the relationship. And because of opportunity, you haven't fully arrived yet. But there's one more thing that he mentions, and that is maturity. Maturity. Incentive number three for passionately pursuing Christ's maturity. This is the mature way to think. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is just a great way to conclude. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Notice that this is a very practical conclusion. Paul is saying that, hey... He's saying this to brothers in Christ. He's saying this to people that he loves. These aren't non-Christians. He's saying, hey, look, I want you to think this way. He's given you nine verses of his own testimony. He's used I, me, my. Now he turns it to us. And he's saying, look, this isn't just the way I think. This is the way that we think. This is the way that the mature think. Interesting, just again, you Bible uh, scholar nerds. The word mature there. It's the same word that was translated perfected earlier that I said means arrived. Paul is being ironic here. He's saying, for those of us who have supposedly arrived, (laughs) this is the way that we think. We think that we haven't arrived. 
You want to know what mature Christian thinking is? It's realizing that you have more maturing to do. He says, let the mature among us think this way. And notice he includes includes himself in that. But then he adds another category of people. And this should perk your interest. You're saying, Justin, is it possible for some of us not to think this way and still be in Christ? Absolutely, because notice what he says. He says, and if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. He's assuming that there may be some among them who don't yet fully understand what passionate pursuit of Christ in every area of life looks like. And I love the chill way with which he deals with this. Parents, keep this in mind. Other pastors in the room, keep this in mind. There are some things that you just have to trust that God will eventually make known to people. You know what saved me like a ton of sleep in recent days is understanding that, hey, I could say something only so much, but at some point, God does his work in the hearts of other individuals. Paul doesn't like keep obsessing over the point until every cotton-picking Philippian gets the idea. He just says, hey, here's the truth. I think the mature think this way, and if any of you don't get it, God will reveal this to you. He's confident. He's confident that God's going to do his work. He's going to help them see the value of Christ eventually. Certainly, friends, I've had times in my life in which Christ didn't seem to be the most valuable. And God has revealed otherwise. (laughs) And you know what he says in the meantime? This is, again, a fitting close. Verse 16, in the meantime, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Only let us hold true to what we have attained Uh, What is it that we have attained? What is it that we are holding on to? He he keeps it simple here. He says, look, just keep holding on to Jesus to whatever degree you think you can enjoy him. Just keep holding on to the standard of your righteousness, which is Jesus. That's what the whole testimony was about. Now, if somebody doesn't have that testimony, they're not in Christ. But you can be holding to Jesus and have been tempted by other things in this world. <laughs> you can see that uh, allure uh, of, of the other. You can have this misplaced affinity for the temporal. And he says, look, don't worry. God's going to show you. Just keep holding on to Jesus. Just keep focusing on him. And he will become your passionate pursuit. But ultimately, we pursue Christ passionately because this is a mature way to think. It's a matter of maturity. Well, friends, it is Christmas. I have not forgot that. <laughs> you would think, man, I can't believe I show up to church two Sundays before Christmas, and this dude didn't even preach a Christmas sermon. <laughs> well, maybe I can give you a Christmas analogy. It's Christmas, and um, Hallmark Christmas movies are in full swing. I haven't seen a one of them. You know what? In fact, I don't think I've ever watched a Hallmark Christmas movie all the way through. And you know why? I don't, I'm going to hurt people's feelings here at the end. Because I watched the first 15 minutes of it and I know how it ends. Like, what is there to watch? I see the angry eyes over there. Don't, don't, don't judge me. You know it's true. You know, what's fascinating about uh, those movies, because they're always based around 
you know, the unlikely romance, you know, somebody who wasn't interested in somebody else, and then all of a sudden the guy started seeing the value of this girl, and even though he was a jerk at first, he tries to win her back, and, you know, the, then they get engaged or whatever. And the movie always ends when, when the relationship's finalized. But you know one thing I don't think you'll ever see in a Hallmark movie? A sequel. They're not going to want you to see what happens in that relationship a year after said consummation date. Because frankly, it's kind of boring, isn't it? They settle into a pattern or routine of life, the things that the guy did initially to win her affections, the way that he was spending himself is, is old news. Now there's business, and now there's kids, and now there's life responsibilities, and it's just about paying the mortgage, right? You just got to get through. And, and what was at one time a vibrant relationship that was enjoyed is now, at worst, endured. It's quite a contrast. If I understand what's being modeled for us here correctly, it is actually something that is antithetical to the typical, like, hallmark approach. Or maybe it's actually emblematic of it, but it endures beyond the consummation of the relationship, and it moves on into the ongoing expression of the relationship. What Paul is calling for us all to, to take in is the opportunity for increasing enjoyment of Christ beyond the initiation of the relationship. I mean, we all know what, what it's like for things, uh, not just maritally, but I'm talking about like relationally, uh, with Christ to become perfunctory. Oh, I read my Bible today. I prayed a total of five minutes today. I went to church this week. I did my giving this week. I mean, it's not about enjoying Christ. It is about enduring the things that must be done for Him. And we fall into this just rather laid-back, lackadaisical approach. And Paul is saying that, no, 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 you're missing out on something. If you're not all in, it isn't that you just need to ratchet up the intensity. You need... Not just to try harder, but to trust that Christ is indeed worth your every expenditure. There is so much more of Him to enjoy. This relationship is the focus of what He's called you into from the very beginning. This is the mature way to think. We should be fighting for that type of enjoyment of Christ. And we only do it when we see that there's opportunity and that affinity, this relationship enjoyed, is the focus of what he's called us into in the first place. And that this is mature. He said, Justin, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could just start with trusting by faith that Jesus is more valuable than we make him out to be. I think for some in this room, it would actually be recognizing by faith that Jesus is the supremely valuable one. In recent days, I've been interacting with someone who seems to be wrestling through this very issue. And every time I address, you know, the beauty and the superiority of Christ and how great He is, he's like, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm like... At some point, you just trust. You have to, like, trust. There's some faith that, no, 
this Jesus is who he said he is, and I will believe that he is worthy. There is a response of faith. There's a forsaking of your old way, because you know that's not working. (laughs) And there is a faith and trust in Christ alone, a dependence upon him as the supremely valuable one. Say, Justin, I've done that. What am I supposed to do now? Well, I know that there's the cynical among us who would say, all right, Justin, I get it. So you want me to wake up at 4.30 in the morning like Jocko <laughs> and start reading my Bible and praying and fasting and, and giving more money Christmas? I would leave you with the words of Calvin. He says, as the runner requires to be free from entanglement and not to stop his course of action on account of any impediment, but must continue his course, surmounting every obstacle. So we must take heed that we do not apply our mind or heart to anything that may divert the attention, but must, on the contrary, make it our endeavor that free form uh, from every distraction that we may apply the whole bent of our mind exclusively to God's calling. So those last words, apply our whole mind exclusively to God's calling. That's all I'm asking is that you would figure out how to apply your mind to God's calling. May I explain it this way? Pardon the, uh, the elementary nature of what I'm about to say. When I was growing up, I used to have these video games in which you could create your own basketball player. You had 100 points to work with. You could give the guy... 100, you know, like 100 points in defense. <laughs> or you can make him 50 defense, 50 offense. Or you can give him 100 points in offense, but you only had 100 points to work with. Friends, what Calvin is trying to call us to understand is that, look, you've only got a certain number of passion points. You can go 50, 50, 50 all the way down and be mediocre in everything. You can be all in on some things to the detriment of other things. What he's saying is, recognizing your limitation, go all in on enjoying Jesus. To the sincere, uh, friends, that there are some of you who are like, yep, I get it, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more. I was just telling um, Phil and Mark this earlier this week, I'm actually not encouraging you to do more. I read a book a few years ago by Tim Challies. It was, it was good. It was called Do More Better. And I've been thinking about that for recent days, and I'm like, no, I don't think God wants me to do more better. I think God wants me to do better more. To do better more. There are, there are high-quality expressions of enjoyment of Jesus and exertion for Him, and I need to figure out what those things are. Friends, let me simplify this for you. You want to enjoy Jesus The means of grace are this, his word, prayer, and the church. You want to enjoy Jesus? Pray. (laughs) You want to enjoy Jesus? Be exposed to his word, whether that be the preaching or whether that be you reading the Bible on your own. And then the church participating in this, this thing that we do. That is a way to enjoy him. And then not only are there ways to enjoy him, there are ways to endure on his behalf. There are exertions for him. And that is anything related to the advance of the gospel in life or with lip. 
So evidencing the gospel in the way that you live, evidencing the gospel in the things that you say. And leaning in on that, making that the highest goal. Enjoy his means, endure his trials. And so I end with these words from Arkent Hughes. I think he says it well. He says, there is nothing in scripture quite like this explosion of spiritual longing. And Paul's passionate longing is meant to serve as an example for all Christians. We are called to make his passion for Christ our own. Dare we ask for this? Will we pray for it? That remains the great question for every Christian. Would you ask for this today? Would you pray this way this season? It's up to you. Let's pray. Father, give us this type of passion for your Son. We are so easily distracted. We're pulled so many different directions. As Paul has commended this to us today, Lord, help us to see Christ as our highest delight. Lord, may May we see that, Lord, He is all we have, all that we need. May may we express this in faith. And may feelings soon follow. Or keep us faithful to your dear Son in these passionate ways. And it's in His name we pray and ask it.